Hello, my name is William Curley, but please call me Will, and welcome to Driving Mr C. This podcast is based on my new book, Driving Mr C, about a time in my life when the job I love wasn't paying me the money I needed, and I had to find something, anything, that would give me an extra source of cash. Driving Mr C is a book about the weird way that, when we least expect it, fascinating characters can come into our lives. And an important life lesson, that what begins as a challenge can sometimes turn into a genuine source of joy. It's about a fabulously eccentric senior citizen who I was asked to look out for. It's a clap for carers in book form. When I was driving Mr C... Each week I'd write a newsletter to Mr C's son Graham and those messages form the basis of the book. It's a tale that celebrates the fact that real life can sometimes be way funnier than fiction. In the podcast I'll be welcoming some special and celebrity guests to talk about artistic dreams and a longed-for epic life, waiting for that call from Hollywood that takes a while to come, side hustles that actually pay your bills job shaming, looking sideways at everyone else's perfect life and your muggle uncle asking your dad when is he going to get a proper job? Welcome to the Driving Mr C podcast. You know, Nigel and I have been on our hands and knees picking up leaves and just twigs and crap on the floor, in fact more than once but I remember the first time we did it yeah, we were clearing up, and Nia just looked at me. It was raining, it was muddy, and he looked at me and goes, I used to be a pilot. People used to bring me coffee in my cockpit. And I looked at him and said, Nige, I used to be somebody. I'd walk into meetings, and then people would look up and go, oh, Dan's here. And now, now knee-deep in mud. And yet, and yet both of us look, and we both have a little laugh and go, yeah, it's better this way, isn't it? Because, you know, we're in our own destiny. It's very, very different. Fantastic. Paid quite a lot less. <laughs> In our last episode with celebrity guest Sinetra Sarka, we took a look at so-called side hustles, the tasks people take on when their dream job isn't coming up with the cash they need. And I thought that for this episode, we'd take a deep dive into the topic of what we might call career swerves by talking to a couple of friends of mine, Nigel Smith and Dan Burgess, who have changed their careers quite dramatically in recent years. When Covid came, all of a sudden I had no rehearsals to go to. It was like Shakespeare's day when the plague struck London and closed all the playhouses. I had so many exciting projects cancelled. I had been due to direct a very juicy opera in Leipzig, Noah's Flood by my favourite composer Benjamin Britten, with 120 people in the cast. But along with all my other directing work, this project simply couldn't take place. I was bemoaning my lot with my tree surgeon friend Nigel, and he said that, despite the fact I'm no Jim Bunny, I'd be very welcome to go along and help him and his colleague Dan with some branch wrangling. Now, usually, when I need something practical done at work, I just yell, Stage management! and some kind person sporting a headset and wearing dark clothing comes to my rescue. But tree surgery was to give me one hell of a workout. Nigel climbs to the treetops, and as he and Dan wield their chainsaws, 
I was on branch dragging and chipping duties. And despite being absolutely exhausting, it was a wonderful experience. I'd come home from my day as a woodcutter's mate feeling wrecked. My wife would say, are you okay? And I'd just sort of shuffle into the shower. But there was something terrifically wholesome about wrestling with nature, and it seemed to me to be the opposite of being stuck in one of those office jobs where you're constantly in your head or coping with the stresses and strains of people politics. We'd arrive at a job first thing, and I loved watching Dan and Nigel size up the challenge at the beginning of a day and work out the way they were going to address a task, big or small, whether it was a massive tree that needed to come down or a huge hedge that had to be cut down to size. And then the work would begin, chainsaws starting up. And what career swerves both Dan and Nigel have undertaken to reach their new lives as tree surgeons. As you'll hear, Nigel had his time as captain in the cockpit, flying executive jets all around the globe, and has now made the transition to flying high in the treetops. And Dan has broken free of the pressures of corporate life, and now rather than being lashed to his laptop computer or having to travel thousands of miles away from home each year, picks up a roaring chainsaw and makes the trees quake every working day. So I've made my way to where the tree surgeons are working today and uh, they are, they've got their chainsaws out and they're going for it in their orange gear there's a chainsaw raging away that's Dan, Dan and Nigel are chopping down some branches right as we speak Yeah, you'd get four or five hundred emails a day um, uh, there was no typical day because you'd have, you know, perhaps a third of your time you'd be travelling, um, you know, a- around the world uh, seeing the locations because obviously um, a global business. Um, uh, a third of your time you'd be travelling around the UK or, or close to it, at home in Europe, um, and then, yeah, I mean, then a lot of time in the office. Even when you're travelling, you, it's it's endless emails, endless conference calls, huge back to back to back to back to back. You know, it's quite hard to explain when you see the diary. You just have a sea of different calls. Uh, I was running a, um, a business. I mean, the, the last year's revenue that I was there, I was responsible for £215 million pounds worth of revenue. Crikey. Um, and that's, that's quite a chunk of money coming in and a hugely diverse portfolio of businesses and brands. So you were flying around the world and setting up uh, theme parks and similar things in different countries. Is that right? Yeah, basically. That's my last five years, yeah. And tell me about a good day. What was the fun of it? What was the creative part? What was the exciting part? A great day would be when you get uh, asked for a first plan or first vision for a new park, let's say, in Korea. Um, And you need to sit down and plan from scratch every the guest journey, every element, every touch point that any guest would have with any kind of food and beverage within a Legoland park in Korea. And that's exciting because that involves um, preparation beforehand, going to Korea quite a lot and actually visiting and understanding what the the consumer demands and needs are there, lots of research coming together. But a great day would be in the room, bringing all that together and actually just doing that first map of of, of how you're going to exceed that customer's expectations. Okay, so um, Nigel, how did did you first get the idea that you wanted to become a pilot? Because I think um, you were a soldier previously, weren't you? I came out of the, uh, the army... And um, after doing some travelling and, and setting up a, 
an adventure training company. Um, I then uh, I, I then uh, was lucky enough to have a birthday. My wife um, then um, offered me a, a, a trial lesson at Filton near Bristol. And the guy took me up in this very small little plane. I could see that it was a very cloudy day. And I said, well, is, are we just going to be bumping around underneath the clouds? And he said, no, we're going to be going above the clouds. I said, well, how can you get above the clouds? And he said, well, we just go straight through them. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I got into the plane and then he took me up. We took off from Filton and we went straight up through the cloud. It was a little bit bumpy. And then we arrived in heaven. There was this magical, fluffy cloud below us and the bluest of skies above as we just made our way around just through the, the cloud tops. And I think at that point, I knew I was going to have to do this as a job. I then said to the guy, how do we get back down? And he said, watch this. <laughs> and he turned a few things and spoke to a, a guy in air traffic control. We went back down through the cloud spat out through the bottom of the cloud and the runway was directly in front of me. It was like magic. Wow. And I thought, I need to be part of something like this. Wow. So that was your, was that your very first experience of going up in a plane and being in the, the flight, on the flight deck in it the cockpit? It was, absolutely. Absolutely was, yeah. It was uh, incredible. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's uh, an amazing job. I mean, you always kind of say that it's, it's always a lovely sunny day in the office. It, the, the, the nicest part is coming down out of the blue sky. And then as you start to appreciate the sensation of speed when you're relative to the cloud below you, then it starts to get really nice and interesting as you see all of the cloud and everything below you. It's, uh, it's quite an amazing job. What would a good day at work be when you are flying those private jets around the world? The good thing about a good day would be that you're going to a destination that already uh, you thought, this, this looks fantastic, I've never been here before. Uh, also, to having, having a, uh, a good, um, good weather along the en route, knowing that it was going to be a fairly, not simple day, because things can always go wrong on the simplest of days. But when you've got a good client as well, that really makes a good day. So whether it's somebody that's come on board and, and they're not used to, to flying, or even if it's somebody... Um, so you might get people, that, it's a real treat for them to be on your plane, and they're really excited about flying on a private jet for the first time. Absolutely, absolutely. And they're absolutely so overborne with the, with the, uh, um, the whole experience and the fact of having the champagne, the silver service uh, on board. Um, and even the uh, the the, the uh, pop groups and and um, politicians and um, members of royalty that that we've we've flown, some of them you'll catch them on a good day, some of them you'll catch them on a bad day. Well, let's talk so... about a bad day then. So there you are in your glamorous world, and if you're flying selfish rich people rather than kind people who are having a treat flying on a yeah. a, a small um, exciting sports car of a plane. Uh, what are the problems that come with entitled people or or selfish people or people who want to fly their poodles to Moscow? Um, how, does it, how does it work with people who aren't necessarily the kindest of passengers? Well, I think that um, they, they come in a number of different varieties, but one I would say that they, they, they will hire a, a Learjet to, um, uh, to, to transport them to, uh, from A to B with luggage that was meant for a 747 so um ah. and so so we've had that lots of times when the the captain says i'm really sorry you're going to have to leave something behind or we're going to have to stow it inside the cabin with you 
then they get quite irate. And what about the entitlement of these people? Because presumably they're used to bossing people around. Did you find that um, they were they might be rude to you or grumpy about? I mean, I can imagine when you're flying a, a an airline jet having passengers who are disgruntled by delays and so on. But if you're dealing with someone who's paid many thousands of pounds for the flights and for your services, did you find that they could be um, stroppy about uh, those kind of unavoidable um, problems that come along in any aviation situation? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've, we've always heard the, the phrase, do they, do they not know who I am? You know, kind of thing when, when you're kind of thinking, well, there's a whole airport waiting to get off the ground and due to weather or due to whatever restrictions everybody is in the same boat but they seem entitled um to the fact that they should be first there's you and a co-pilot is that right that's right and then and then who are the crew who are dealing with giving out the caviar um so back you... at the back <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you have um so you'd have two crew at the front um and so you'd have a captain and a co-pilot and uh you'd then have a, um, a hostess uh, in the, the back of the aircraft and um, with the longer haul aircraft then generally you would have two hostesses um, looking after what could be just one person um, so you have an aircraft which can fly um, direct to Miami um, from the UK or uh, you know sort of 12 hours in the air wherever you know wherever the uh, the client wants to go and as a result of that whether it's whether it's a you know twelve people inside or one per- one person inside, then they're all expecting their silver service. And were you flying sometimes uh, down to places in Africa? Yeah, we spent um, a, a fair amount of time uh, down in Africa, uh, where we were uh, working for um, a, an individual company um, who was flying a lot of the the tribal leaders um, around because, uh, in Nigeria, oh. it was unsafe to travel by road. Right. Um, and therefore we would, um, turn up, um, we would turn up awaiting, uh, the guy and then suddenly a, a band and a, um, a load of military will come round. Wow. And, uh, and then these guys would turn out with the most outrageously bright coloured, um, robes and hats um, and then they would then kiss the floor and the uh, uh, and then they would then come onto the aircraft and the guys would have um, uh, AK-47s, oh um, which they would bring on board. Um, and, and so we had to make sure that, that they had unloaded their, their uh, weapons properly prior to coming on. And what about when you were flying Russian oligarchs, Nigel? Because were you really at the whim of these rich people? Because presumably they could say... I want to go. I want to go back to London, and I want to go to my flat in Knightsbridge now. Yeah. Or they could say, "Oh, I've decided to stay longer in Moscow or longer in America. Uh, I won't be coming back today." And so, were you just waiting to hear from um, the rich people who you were flying around the place what they wanted to do next? Presumably, it's like they'd ring you and say, "We're going to Monaco this afternoon." Oh, absolutely! You're always on call, um, always on call, and therefore um, you would have to be expected to uh, turn a flight around and plan it on the spin of a coin and then you would then be flying transatlantic you know within hours um, which would be unheard of for a lot of uh, for a lot of airline pilots um, also with with one of the, the families that uh, that I flew with two of the children wouldn't fly together and therefore I would I would go to uh, to London and pick up one of them and take them down to St Martin in the Caribbean I would then go and fly back to 
London and pick up the other one and bring him independently a week later because they didn't want to fly together. And did you ever have to fly around pampered pets? Were there poodles or chihuahuas or were there any um, occasions where you had to fly very rich, uh, very rich people's pampered pets? Yes, well, there's um, there was uh, uh, the wife of of one of one of our clients, um, uh, and she she had a number of um, a number of uh, uh, very very good dogs, which were I think were of the same bloodline as as the uh, the queen, um, and and so they would go down to um, down to uh, dog shows uh, down in South America, um, and so when I think of the uh, the eco. A footprint attached to that is quite obscene, but yeah. So, they... so that's a lot of canine air miles going on. It is absolutely, and yeah. they were such pedigree animals that yeah. they were flying from one fancy competition yeah. to back to Crofts, yeah, and then off to another. And so they were they were in the the cabin with the owners, and presumably they had their little um, Scooby snacks as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And then what about a bad day, a bad day at the office or a bad day bad in that days. kind of work? What, what would be happening? What would be going wrong? What kind of firefighting would you be doing, Dan? would be 20 back-to-back half-hour conference calls um, with lots of people with their own agendas um, and lots of stuff that is just purely about keeping the business ticking over. A lot of people would say that uh, technology has made things massively easier, but in reality, when you're in a company like that, that's global, that never sleeps because someone's always needing something, no. You, your phone is constantly pinging um, and there is no hiding place. And you know, the culture of most hospitality businesses is that you respond. You know, uh, officially, it would be no, you know, it was out of hours, but unofficially, you need to sort, you need to sort the problems out. And actually, in reality, you know, you've got guys working hard you know, at, at, the, at the coalface. Uh, you've got to help them out if they've got a problem. So, yeah, I'm afraid it was 24 hours a day. And tell me about the stresses and strains, because um, if you're in the middle of a big project like this, I mean, I know from, uh, you know, putting on a, a big show that's a lot of pressure that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't sleep or I'm, Quite, I, yeah. I'm worried or you can't really switch off or properly rest. Did you find that in that part of the world, given that we're about to t- talk about a career swerve you've made into uh, working with nature, I wonder whether... Um, the stresses and strains really began to toll in that corporate world, Dan? There's no doubt. It's, it, it's very different from what I do now. Uh, I mean, well, you've, we've had this conversation uh, at times in the past where I use a phrase that I don't feel I own my thoughts. You know, because you know, your brain has a certain amount of capacity, some more than others, um, but it has a certain amount of capacity. And I felt that um, you know, all the good stuff was being taken by somebody else. Now, whether that's stress or whether that's just you being constantly involved in big decisions that have to be made, and you know, there's thousands of decisions on a daily basis, but you know, you 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 know, you have to have a touch point when you're running a business like that. You have to have a touch point on, on any of the big strategic elements that go into that, and you're responsible for all of it. So yeah, you wake up several times a night thinking about the most absurd and diverse things, and then often when you when you're there in the morning. The, the little things that don't necessarily matter, but your brain's functioning uh, as you sleep, and it's it's trying to understand and you know um, uh, break down the challenges that you've had in that day. So, Dan, uh, I mean, the pressure must have been enormous. Do you have to 
do presentations where you're having ideas and then getting them approved by big bosses? Is there a competition for that kind of attention and the commission of your plans for the business? How does all of that work? Is there a real pressure to be coming forward with ideas and then it's like auditioning for singers. I imagine that you're having to put energy out there and show your wares and often getting um, rejected. No, I've worked in businesses where the leadership take a direct role in everything. And you have to constantly be justifying every expenditure or every business direction. And that's, that's, that can be wearing. Was it a very luxurious life? Were you flying first class and getting to go to fancy hotels and eat caviar, Dan? No, but there, there was a lot of flying around. And yes, it's flying around in business class. And I've been to places that are just gorgeous and beautiful. And I, you know... I have loved seeing the world but it's and always, have someone else pay for it. But, but it's I'm, always within the context of that pressure to it's deliver. It's always. I, I have had, I've sat and done conference calls in the most beautiful locations and you kind of want to kick yourself at the end of it and say, you know, I haven't even really looked up and seen where I am because all I've done is I've done five conference calls about the role of a new health and safety manual. And, and, and that's the absurdity of it. You've spent a fortune getting somewhere. It's exquisitely beautiful. In your own life, Will, if I was there with you, we'd be going around galleries and you know, enjoying ourselves some cocktails. But in reality, you've just done conference calls and meetings in, in, uh, in, in badly lit rooms. So it might be that you go to an exotic location, but actually you spend your time in a meeting room, in a hotel room, mm. and then back to the airport on your home. Well, never quite as bad as that. <laughs> I, um, I was very, very good um, uh, at... Uh, putting a little bit of time in the diary to make sure I got out. And did you have to but wear a suit the whole time? Were no. you in a suit and tie? Or no, no, just usual casual? business dress. Um, business. Casual, sorry, casual business, I think they call it. Is that right? Casual Smart, casual. Smart, Smart casual. casual. Smart because casual. Smart casual. Because I tell you what, Dan Burgess, when I come and see you at work these days... I'm a scruffy git, aren't you I? You are dressed in this incredible orange uh-huh. outfit with orange braces, high visibility, everything's high visibility. Yeah, yeah. You, have, you and Nigel have these extraordinary technological hard hats mm. with headphones on them and you're able to talk to each other or sometimes I think you listen to other podcasts, don't you? I do. You're going I to can't be able believe to listen to other people's podcasts. You're going to be able to listen to yourself on a podcast now, <laughs> Dan Burgess. But um, you have all of that safety equipment and you're dealing with roaring chainsaws and you're dealing with chippers and um, weight-bearing stuff and ropes and um, chainsaws roaring away. I mean, what a contrast. How the heck, Dan Burgess, have you gone from... Um, the the pressures and strains and the luxury of that corporate world life you lived to um, now chopping down trees for a living. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? And I have to keep questioning it myself because <laughs> it's, 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 it's absurd. I don't think there's a morning that I don't think about it as I go out and with all my gear on. That, you know, I used to, I used to have really smart shoes and, you know, delightful shirts that I, um, but now I, yeah, I just, I, I put on the workshop and that's it. And, and, you know, it's safe, it's warm, it's dry. It's very different, Will. And um, every day you are going and doing a job of work. And then when you come home, you can't carry on at that physical activity of chopping down a tree or 
um, or rearranging, you know, a forest or a garden or <laughs> you can't, you, you leave your work at work, I suppose. I know you have to plan the running of the business and you have to go oh, yeah. out and tout for gigs and think, go and see site visits and, and, and con- you're constantly um, looking for the next gig. But fundamentally, it must be a, a different focus. Do you sleep better? You know, yeah. presumably you're not, you're not having those three o'clock in the morning phone calls from scary boss saying, where the no. hell are you? I mean, Nigel can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> but, um, no, it's it's very different. Well, I am. Um, I, I it took me probably uh, six months of doing this job before uh, I was able to move in the evenings without getting cramped. So that <laughs> makes you feel a little bit better. Yes. Um, about your evening pains. Yes. But um, you know, I get home. I am physically tired, but I have you know, I, you've got the company to run. I, I so I try uh, and get all of my admin all quotes done in the evenings because I hate it taking at weekends. Yeah. The, the, the key thing, as you've touched on, is, is, is about that stress level and, and how that works in your brain. The point is, now, I own my own thoughts. You know, I have no issue sitting down for you know, an hour or two and tapping out some invoices. It's, it's, do you know what? I wouldn't say it's a pleasure, but it's, it's easy. I've got the, you know, I'm at home. I'm here. My family are around me. You know, um, and it's very different from being in an office in London or an office in New York or an office in, I don't know, you know, Japan. So this is Nigel starting up the chipper. Here we go. This is the chipper. And it it uh, turns the the branches into um, well into sawdust really. There it goes. So Nigel's pushing the branches into the chipper, which is a job that I had. And so it goes on, the next branch going in and ending up as sawdust. And that's the beast winding down key part of the equipment on hire every day. As soon as um, we looked at the costs involved in flying, they were huge in order to learn to fly. And therefore, at the same time as learning to fly, I had to be earning as well. And therefore, I decided to train as a tree surgeon um, at the same time as doing my pilot studies. I started a number of courses that would enable me to do the tree surgery work whilst doing my flying which was great and it worked really really well had you had any experience as a kid of um using axes to chop down trees or of using chainsaws along the way or was any of your army training involved with forest clearance or any of those skills was this something new when you did your tree surgery training i think it i think it was more as a result of the um uh, the canoeing and the climbing and the the adventure training that i used to do and therefore as a tree surgeon hanging off of ropes um and uh, and sort of whistling a uh, a chainsaw around was absolutely great fun but also I had the backing of already having a solid background of climbing experience to base it on. A 
great days when you've got a reasonably technical job, usually something quite a big tree with, with, with some interesting, you know, you've got to be cut in a particular way so you can be a little bit creative. Um, yeah, a bad day is anything to do with a hedge, basically. <laughs> um, but that's fine. You know, that's part of the job. You've got to take, you know, we take all the jobs that come to us. But certainly we like the, you know, the quite technical jobs. And, you know, although Nigel and I are relatively new into the industry. But how did you learn those but, skills? I mean, that's I a hell so of we, a retraining experience, We've put a lot of effort into uh, retraining. But a lot of it is about basic principles of safety. Um, you know, make sure you've got the right equipment with the right people training the right way. So, you know, I went back to college um, and I did time at college making sure I'm qualified to do all the key stuff I needed to do. And we employ people who are qualified to do the same. It must be really fun that every job is different, Dan, because mm. you're really not repeating yourself, are you? You're turning up in the morning as a tree surgeon well, and having to address the day's problem. At the end of the day, that tree is down. The <laughs> landscape is changed. Somebody who has a forest can suddenly see the sky. You do have a couple of repeat customers. Every day is different in a way, but there's also an element of comfort in that re repetition. You know, well, again, in my last jobs, it was, it was 100 miles an hour. You never felt you were doing everything to its best in its best possible way. You never felt that you'd actually finished something. Uh, in this job, it's very different. It's a lot more, you know, it's, it's a, it can be end-to-end. -end. You get more satisfaction from it. It must and be. And you get closure. Yes, yes. At the end of the day, you've done a job and you can see the effect you've had immediately. Yeah. And, and also, you've talked about what podcasts I listen to in the daytime. The fact is that as I'm doing these jobs, you know, my mind is my own. You know, I, I'm not owned or defined now by what I do. Whereas I think, realistically, certainly for the first 10 years of my career, I was working so hard that it utterly defined me. And then for the probably for the second 10 years, you know, not working probably as hard, um, as in physically at the front line, because you've, in an executive role, you're more behind the scenes. But the thought processes that go into your work it was just, you know, I had no time to be creative and no time to think about things that I wanted to think about. Whereas I think now, you know, even while I'm at work, clearly if we're doing something dangerous or, 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 or challenging, you're totally on it. But when you're cutting someone's hedge for them, you know, you can be designing, you know, your next project, your next garden project, or you're thinking about doing something else. And it's really, it's really therapeutic. good day is when you turn up and there's a tree on its own where you can just do what you need to do and a bad day is when it's surrounded by obstacles and telephone wires and and power lines and other bits and pieces but um you know you just you just get on with it and uh, and do your job and uh, and usually the customer is uh, you know is really pleased it must be absolutely exhausting though nigel i mean when you were working um flying those aircraft it wasn't physically stressful i imagine in terms of you weren't doing much uh lifting and and you know pumping iron in the way that as a tree surgeon you're you must be exhausted every single day how do you how do you keep it up how do you find the stamina to uh you know to do that physical task which it must be very demanding yeah well i think that um with the military background i think you tend to keep yourself reasonably fit anyway but I'm 57 now, and, and I, I feel it every day. And, uh, and we have a, another climber that works with us, and he's 61. 
and I can see that he's starting to feel it as well. So, um, but unlike, unlike myself, he'll come back from doing a full day and uh, he will then go out and do body pump and whatever at the local gym, whereas wow. I, I will collapse on the floor and, uh, and then just uh, wait for the next day to arrive. So. But we own our own destiny, and I think, um, I think that's it. I know Nigel's very uh, fed up of not seeing his family grow up. You know, I spent you know, so much time away. I used, to, you know, I used to hate it. I'd say goodbye to my family if I was travelling... You know, long haul. I'd often go for two weeks. Sometimes. Oh, you'd go, you'd go away from home for two weeks at a time. Yeah, sometimes more. If you were doing something in in you know Japan or in China, you know, there's no point in going for a short time. You you go and get all your business done, and you block it out. So yeah, we go away for long periods of time. And when the family young, that's really hard. Well, it is if you like your family, which I uh, I did. So. I do, I should say. Yes, um, I had uh, my own experience of that. I think it was the day after Louisa's christening, and I had to go to Beijing for six weeks to direct a production of The Barber of Seville um, in a very prestigious theatre, which looks great on your CV, but actually being Daddy Skype is a really hard thing, oh, isn't yeah. it? And thinking it's that, painful. And, and thinking, feeling guilty that you're leaving your partner there to deal with um, those domestic you know, and challenging situations with the children... And um, you're there and you can't really help because you're video dad. And you're in this prestigious, prestigious place uh, and seemingly to all onlookers enjoying yourself in this wonderful thing. And, you know, I'd be the same and I'd be, you know, calling my children. And actually what I really wanted to do is, is be at home with them or certainly be spending time with them. You know, one of the elements of this change in my career is about wanting to ensure that every moment of my life is enjoyed to the full well, or, or utilised to the full. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were days in, in, you know, when I'd been doing my last job where you would be rocking up to a meeting, like a two or three day meeting, you know it was going to be intensely dull and you would almost wish those three days away, you know. And, and I used to do a little thing where I'd park my car in an underground car park, you know, a particularly big office that I used to work in, and if I knew I was in there for three days, I'd almost say goodbye to the car. And I'd go, car, I'll see you in three days, and then we'll have some fun. You know, we'll be driving home, and then it's, it's over. You're wishing your time away. Mm. And certainly, you know, if I was doing two weeks in China, you know, it sounds terrible, but I would be counting the days, counting the days, you know, till I was going, going back home again. And I just felt that, you know, life is not that long when you look at it in the round. You know, we are here on a pretty cool planet, not for very long. Just a few decades. And to wish any of it away is fundamentally wrong. So, you know, I wanted to be in a place where I was, you know, taking the best out of life every day. So when you're down there on your knees with Nigel, the ex-pilot, and you, <laughs> the ex-corporate uh, high flyer, yeah, how yeah. do you deal with... Um, uh, what happens, the temptations, the blandishments of corporate life. Do, are you not getting headhunted all the time to come back and get back into this world where you're flying around the world? Well, yeah, that's... And how do you deal with that temptation? That's really hard. Do you know what's the hardest bit is? Because when someone phones you up and asks you to do something and, you know, talks about there's a money element and there's an excitement and you've talked about, you know, you fly around the world and you do big projects, you know, you invest millions of pounds in new restaurants... On the face of it, that's exciting. You know what? Actually, it is exciting. But also all the other stuff that goes along with it. So when someone phones you up, there's that little bit of you goes, oh, yeah. 
Because firstly, someone wants you, and who doesn't want to hear that? Yeah. Um, and then the second bit is, oh, geez, I know I'm not going to take it because I don't want to do this anymore. But now I have to follow it through because I, there's something inside of me that says that I need to, you know, I need to hear more and understand more. So a couple of times, um, you know, well, a number of times uh, in the first year or two of Nigel and I doing this, you know, I've got very serious offers to go and do other things. And it's very distracting. Um, I came through with a, probably a dream job um, last summer. Um, a, a, a fantastic offer uh, with an insane amount of money attached to it and, you know, really quite, you know, a dynamic role. And I really had to think about it. Um, I spoke to Nigel about it. You know, he was awesome. You know, we, we spoke about the fact that we need to do the right thing. And then I had a chat with my family and we actually sat around uh, the dining room table and I said, right, this is here. This is what it means. This is the role. Um, you know, there's the money element, so we'll be able to do other things and it will bring these benefits. There's a, there's a travel in it as well, so the kids buy into that because they used to take them to places. And I said, but it means that um, <laughs> I'm going to be gone a lot. Um, a lot. Um, and it was really gorgeous because um, my oldest son said, Dad, you, do, you make your own decision, but I would much rather you didn't do that. Because wow. I really loved having you around. And life is really good, oh. you know. And I, I, you know, I used to hate it when you go away for long periods of the time. So for me, I don't want you to do it. And then I looked at my other two kids, and my my daughter was like, "But you could take me to exciting places, right?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, honey, I could do." Uh, so she was a bit more ambiguous. And and obviously, my my youngest one was just you know he just wanted to know if I was going to bring him any more chocolate back from anywhere. But um, but interestingly, my wife, who was awesome, she just said, "It's your decision," and I kept on pressing her. And eventually she said, if you're pushing me for an answer, it's no. Because I don't want you to be checking your mobile phone every three or four minutes for emails and every time it pings. I don't want you just disappearing in the middle of a conversation into thought about something else. He said, you are someone completely different now. You're more relaxed. You're more you. You're more fun. And, you know, I like this. You know, I don't want that other stress head, if you like, coming back into our lives. And... I'm really happy the way we are. So do you ever look back at your career change from being a pilot to being a tree surgeon and think, oh, it would be nice to get back at the controls? Or are you happy that you've left that behind and now you do a job where you don't get the same psychological stresses and strains? Yeah, the uh, flying, there were lots um, lots of stresses in there. I mean you were constantly aware that every six months you would be in the simulator being assessed. Um, every year or even six months you would be going and having a medical with potential of losing your licence. There was there were lots of things that uh, that would, would keep you stressed even prior prior to the event. Whereas with my tree surgery I, I, I don't bring any baggage home. I, I get up, we go and do the job, hopefully we do a good job, everybody is safe and we come back with some money in our pocket. Um, whereas the the time that was spent away, two weeks on, two weeks off with the long haul uh, aircraft, meant that you know you're really missing out on the family time at home. Um, and I, I can remember one time when I, I rang my wife. We were in uh, Miami, I think, or in, in the Maldives, one of the two. And uh, and I was ringing her, and whilst I was speaking to her, she could hear the lapping of the water around my feet. Um, and she said, "Is." 
are you are you on the beach and i said yes my feet are in the waves at the moment but i hope i didn't think that you'd hear that <laughs> and, and so it was really very unbalanced the fact that she was at home as she was walking the dog taking the kids to school doing her own job spinning plates and i was stood in this amazing place with the waves lapping around my feet it was a very unbalanced um, relationship and therefore that was one of the tipping factors that made us decide to actually step away from there. But then with um, COVID and, the, uh, uh, and everything that's happening in Ukraine, Russia um, is, is not obviously the top of everybody's wish list and therefore I was working for a rich Russian living in, in Moscow and therefore... I stepped away from aviation and went back to an industry that I was aware of, had worked alongside my piloting career and, and thoroughly loved. And I really enjoy working with the people that, uh, you know, that we work with. And whether it's a wet day or a sunny day, it, it's always a good laugh. Do you, think, do you think that you can have enough luxury sometimes in life? I mean, I imagine being in a luxury hotel in Miami or on the Côte d'Azur, it's all very well and you must have, you know, had delicious food and, and a great time. But fundamentally, if you are away from the people you love and you are away from your children and your, and your, and your wife, that, that must be uh, difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely uh, one, of the, one of the main things, I would say is that uh, when you're away for two weeks or even longer in some instances, then it, it's, it's precious time. And I think for the 20 years that I was a pilot, I now look back and I wonder whether it was, was worth it because the, my children also grew up through that time frame. And although I had two weeks with them when I came back, I missed out on so much of their growing up. And, you know, if I did it again, would I do it differently? Probably so. So what would you advise people who are thinking about making a career change to do? Because there must be there must be thousands and thousands of people who are doing jobs they don't even like for years on end to maintain a lifestyle. But it's a bold choice to make a big decision. But it's, isn't it? it's a hard choice. And, and I can't pretend I, I cannot pretend to be the expert on it. I think sometimes you need to stand back and say, you know, how long am I here for? What really matters here? And I think there are a lot of jobs out there that actually can pay and do pay that you can get far more reward from. So, you know, think carefully about it. There's no easy answer. But, you know, doing something you hate or, or doing something you're uncomfortable with is fundamentally wrong. Is there a kudos problem, though? Because you must have been getting tons of pixie points for being a high flyer, and now, you know, you're chopping down trees. I mean, is there a, a, a world in which you've had to sort of take some kind of self-esteem hit in terms of what the world might think of you? Now you're a practical person who does a very difficult job, but it is one that is primarily it's uh, lower uh, down the social stratus correct right? yeah i think that i think that's how some people would perceive it so if you go to a dinner party and you say you're a tree <laughs> surgeon versus if you go to a dinner party and say i'm a, a corporate surgeon. high flyer <laughs> and i've just been in shanghai setting up a new yeah, theme yeah. park i mean how do you deal with that change well i guess that was part of the reason i swapped because uh folk who would dismiss you for what you do i probably wouldn't be that interested in anyway so that's kind of fine um but there's no doubt, I think um, Sinetra, in your last podcast, Will, was talking about 
you know, that self-doubt, that questioning. And, you know, I have a little devil on my shoulder um, that keeps telling me, you know, when I'm knee-deep in mud or when it's raining and I'm, you know, there's this mud dribbling down my face that tells me, you used to be somebody. <laughs> you, know, you used to be, like, an exec. People used to respect you. Um, and that, there's no doubt that's there. It's subconscious. Because consciously, I do all the things and I say all the things that I've just talked about, right? But all of that is pretend anyway, isn't it? All of that is just stories. Yeah. And actually, the life that you're living now and actually the value you're giving to things and the wrestle you have with nature and also the community, you know, spirit that you're doing. I mean, there are, there are so many clients who really, really need your help and who are, you know, glad of the company and very sweet with tea and bacon butties. Yeah. It's a different kind of an atmosphere to... Um, it is. To, to worked, what you had formerly. I worked with great people, um, a lot of great people, but, you know, every day you felt you were going into battle and you put your emotional armour on, you know, to fend off all the, the political crap that you'd be hit over the head with. You know, nowadays, you know, no. Nowadays, I guess, I put my, uh, my Kevlar trousers on and that's it. I don't, you know... It, we are what we are. We have a, a, a nice, close-knit team. Uh, or we get on well together. And I've left a lot of that crap behind. And you and Nigel laugh your heads off, too. It seems to me like you have a lot of fun while you're doing um, your tree surgery. We try to. You've got to... Yeah, at the end of the day, stuff has to get done. Um, and you've got to be quite focused about it. But we do try and enjoy it. I mean, you've got to enjoy it. You know, because that's, that's the benefit. That's the reason we're there. Well, do you know, I'm really, really grateful that you invited me along to, you invited me out to play. Um, during the pandemic, it was fantastic to come and help you with tree surgery, and uh, I had a, a great time doing it. It was utterly exhausting, and I have to confess that I'm not the strongest, so I wasn't able to lift the heaviest of, of trunk sections. This is true. But, in my defence, mm -hmm. I, I feel I was like... Um, I feel I was like Boxer from Animal Farm, the old horse. Yeah. Who, before he got carted off mm -hmm. to the knacker's yard by mm -hmm. the communists, was someone who said, I must try harder. And I, I, did, uh, I do keep going, even though, um, even though I'm not as physically strong as you, Adonis-like, um, oh, so you gents. But it, it has been a really, real eye-opener for me to do a practical task and do something that is out there in nature. And, and do you know what? I, I'm sure it was really, uh, really good for my mental and my physical health. Well, I, think it was, I think it's fantastic to do that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think we had a cracking laugh. You know, we, you know, we worked, when you were with us, you worked really hard. But I think we, we laughed, we, we, we chatted and joked. You know, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's good for the soul. But I think... Um, I, I will look back on these years of running this business, and I hope it's quite a few more years. Uh, I think I'll look back at it, and I'll be really quite proud of doing this because I think it's it shows a sense of uh, worldliness and the fact that you are, you know, I've seen a completely different side of life. I've I've seen and worked with people that I never would have worked with uh, in my last role. You know, I. <laughs> I feel like I need a passport sometimes to go to my local town because I don't travel that much. But, you know, I've got to know the local area and local people. And it's not just the folk who call us in. It's, it's you know, working with... Yeah, we, we do work with communities too. It's a really it's, good job for really a nosy. Nice. It's a really good job for a nosy parker too. Oh Dad. yeah, I I love looking at people's gardens yes. and looking at their land. Yeah, 
being invited onto it. (laughs) No, we're not judging them. Definitely not judging them. (laughs) And being desperately jealous of their massive houses. There's a couple we've worked with who are lovely places. But, but, you know, it, it really is nice. And you're right. It's for no, someone nosy. It's, it's great. And I've really enjoyed when we get those canvas chairs out and we have our yeah. packed lunches together, yeah. uh, sheltering from the rain under a tree before yeah, we cut yeah. it down. There's a real sense of esprit de corps. There's a real sense that we're out there together battling the elements. And there was one day where you sent me on a job where we were planting hedges and it really (sighs) was so muddy and like the Somme and horizontal rain. And I did think, with my knee deep in the mud, I did think, please... Could I go back to a rehearsal room soon? Please, could that the theatres open work. again? That was our nam, wasn't it? That was, that was that was horrific. I felt sorry for you. I it felt sorry was for me. The apocalypse now of high clear yeah. tree works, and um, yeah, that was that was a hard day. But also the sense of achievement when you finally step into the shower at the end of the day. So when we were talking about um, the stresses and strains of being a pilot versus. Um, being out with nature and wrestling with nature, it must be uh, really much better for your mental health, I presume, would absolutely. you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, I suffered from PTSD um, from the military um, and therefore, you know, the kind of life that you, that you have in aviation is, is not uh, the kind of thing that you really need. What you do need is you need to be out, you need to be physical, you need to be out in the open fresh air and and the, the job that I do now does that in bundles. My friend Nigel, thank you so much for joining me here on the Driving Mr C podcast. You're very welcome. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me on the Driving Mr C podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for hiring me as a tree surgeon's mate. It's been a revelation. Well, thank you very much. It's been nice having a chat with you. You know, I've loved the days that we've worked together um, and you come and, uh, come and cut trees down. I hope there are going to be some more for my benefit, but obviously I hope your, uh, your directorial work uh, takes you away. But um, it's been awesome um, having you work with us. Thank you. Thank you, and I'll make sure that um, you get some free tickets for the next operas I'm directing. Please do. The Driving Mr C podcast is an ESP production for Acast. The producer is Scott Carey, and the executive producer, William Curley. The music is by Blair Jollins, with artwork by Tara Bissett. The Driving Mr C book is available now from the Amazon bookstore, and these words are coming to you from Mr C's enormous armchair, the one his family kindly gave me after he died. Oh, hi, Will. It's, uh, it's nine, just ten past two. Um, I, I just listened to your podcast. I thought it was fantastic, mate. Absolutely fantastic. The only thing that I would say is that um, uh, I would have liked to have just added at the end that actually I got to fly uh, my two boys on my very last flight, um, which uh, which would have been a, a nice little add-on, but uh, it doesn't matter. My very last flight uh, was for maintenance, and my, my two boys came with me. So, uh, yeah, that was good. But uh, apart from that, I thought it was great, mate. You've got a big thumbs up from me. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Bye.